Hello, and welcome to the Irish Left Archive podcast. I'm Inga Story, and with me is Kieran Swan. In this episode, we'll be talking to Laura Broxon. Laura is an activist focused on animal rights and a founder of the National Animal Rights Association, NARA. NARA is a non-hierarchical organisation taking a radical animal rights and vegan perspective. We'll discuss how Laura came to activism and founding NARA, the anti-fur and hair coursing campaigns in which she's been involved, different methods of campaigning from street protests to legislative change, cooperation and interaction with left parties and organisations, and how Laura integrates animal rights campaigning in a wider anti-fascist, anti-capitalist and left perspective. You'll find links to the NARA website and some additional resources suggested by Laura during the discussion in the notes with this episode. You can visit the Irish Left Archive at leftarchive.ie. As ever, we appreciate feedback. Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can contact us via the website, email us at contact at leftarchive.ie, or find us on Twitter at IE Left Archive. Thanks again to Laura for taking the time to talk to us, and thank you for listening. I guess it all started um, basically with with my parents, like where we lived at the time in North County Dublin. Um, we had lots of land and lots of rescue animals. And my parents were always big animal lovers, always like bringing home animals they found and, you know, needed their homes and things like that. And I absolutely love animals. Um, and when I was 12, I started kind of making the connection that how could I love our animals so much? and then go in and eat a murdered, chopped up different animal. How is that, like, how does that make sense in any sort of a way? And it all kind of came to a head. It was actually um, at Christmas time. And when I saw the the turkey on the, the table, I would just, it's like I kind of, my eyes opened for the first time. And I was just like, oh my God, this is, this is awful. Like I can't do this. Um, and so I talked to my parents and I was like, look, I'm going to be a vegetarian now. I don't think this is right um, and this is just what how it's going to be and you know you can't stop me kind of thing and they were like oh we totally agree actually we've been thinking about the same kind of thing let's all do it together so that was like that was great so me from that point onwards myself my mom and dad um, went vegetarian and then about a year later my mom was reading um, a book and it kind of briefly mentioned veganism and that's something we'd never heard of. I mean, we didn't even know any other vegetarians or vegans or animal rights activists or anybody. Um, my mom was kind of like, well, what, what do you think of this? And at that point, we didn't even know the extent of the cruelty of the dairy industry or the egg industry or anything like that. And we just said like, yeah, let's, let's, let's give it a go. It's, it seems to make sense. Why would you eat anything from an animal? And, you know, it, for us, it also comes down to consent and stuff as well, you know? And then, um, went vegan and then I kind of realized oh I'm not happy just being vegan I want to try and like convince everyone to be vegan and I want to to help every animal not not just the the ones I'm choosing not to not to eat and we started looking into um groups within Ireland and international groups and um, I started joining some youth groups of different organizations and stuff like that and even again before we knew any activists me and my mom would go out um, leafleting by ourselves about this this kind of thing and that was my my first introduction into activism and then I started joining animal rights protests and then before long I set up my own group and then once I kind of formulated NARA the National Animal Rights Association I at that stage was already getting involved with anti-fascist campaigning anti-racist campaigning um, and then that kind of led on to marriage equality repeal 
everything. So if I had to credit anything with my activism, it has to be um, my parents and all of our, our animals. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what led me to, to where I am today. That's brilliant. Did, what, what prompted you, in a sense, to start an organisation yourself, like in relation to your relation to other organisations that you've been involved in or you saw? I mean, did you say there's an, a, a gap in the market, as it were, or something that you felt? Yeah, yeah, yeah pretty much. I felt like a, a lot of the organisations that I was involved with, although they were doing good work and whatever, I kind of felt that our ethics weren't 100% aligned. And I also, at the time, being a teenager, I felt even within animal rights groups that my voice was the last to be heard or acknowledged because I was seen as just a teenager in a sea of adults. Um, and I don't like hierarchy either. I don't like people telling me what to do and stuff. So I kind of, it all kind of came to a head where I realized, look, I need to be free to make my own decisions and do what I think is right and do the kind of effective campaigning I think works the best um, and that's what led to, to setting up NARA and it's like the the best thing I've ever done really because it gave me the freedom then to explore a lot of different diverse tactics and overlap with a lot of different international organizations that if I hadn't left the other groups I would have been totally confined and constrained at what I could or couldn't do or where I, what directions I could and couldn't go. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like some of these groups are still around, still doing their own thing, which is great. Um, you know, I, I still keep in touch with and work with a lot of groups around the country. But being an hour means I can kind of focus on what I feel is the best way to do something, um, which I guess is what every group feels. No one is in a group thinking that they're doing something that's not going to work. Um, but I just needed the freedom to be able to do that. When you, when you established NARA, and obviously you established with like-minded people, what was for you the key three or four elements that you said, right, this is what's going to distinguish us from other groups in the area? And, and, and then how did you prosecute the, prosecute the campaigns that you then undertook with it? Well, first, firstly, um, we were the first group to have um, regular pressure campaigns. So, you know, before maybe the tactics in Ireland in terms of animal rights would be like, we'll have a protest once a month, mm. you know, whereas I'm like, no, let's, let's go there every week, several times a week, and let's keep going and focus on one thing until it's absolutely like done. You know, for, for example, like the, some of the first campaigns I worked on um, were getting fur out of shops. Uh, believe it or not, I don't know if you remember the Grafton Street, all the boutiques used to be full of fur. Yeah. Like every shop, fur, 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 yeah. fur. And we'd focus on one at a time until they got rid of their fur. And Brilliant. like that hadn't been done before. We also, before the ban and amplified sound came in um, for Grafton Street, we're also the only group to be using megaphones and being loud and having that sort of level of like um, no compromise militancy kind of way of approaching things and we also were not focused on um, media a lot of events up to that point be very publicity stunt media orientated uh, kind of pizza tactics that's like take off our clothes or whatever mm. which is not our thing at all um uh, based on you know obviously like we don't do any sort of sexist campaigns or anything yeah. like that um but we we didn't really care about the media attention we cared about getting the job done right. and then mm. another point that kind of differentiated us was um we keep a record of all of our donations and what we spend every year and we publish that every year um, and then anyone who has any queries or wants to see a receipt, 
they absolutely can. And we're the only group that makes that amount of information available. So it was really important to me from the beginning to be as transparent as possible because if people are going to give us money, whether it's one euro, whether it's a hundred euro, whether it's a thousand euro, I want them to see where it goes and I want them to be happy with where it goes. Yeah, that's fantastic. Did you feel that, did that was that a response to uh, a feeling that there was a lack of transparency in other organizations? Then? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, there is a couple of things that I've seen over the years that I wasn't really happy with and um, kind of, you know, raised some issues for me to see how other organizations conducted finances and things. And I also don't like um, when people are too focused on getting donations and, you know, guilt trip people and donations. We rarely ask for funding. And if we do, it's for a particular piece of equipment, whether it's a new megaphone or whatever. Uh, so I kind of felt uncomfortable. I still don't like asking people for money. It has to be a very desperate situation where I'll have to do a fundraiser. Um, but I just kind of felt that if we're 100% um, in what we're doing and we're honest, all that information should be made available. And I've also kind of over the years seen the corruption within um, Irish charities, international charities. Um, and I never want to be kind of put in that same category. I don't want anyone to have any qualms about what we get or where it's going. Yeah, that that sounds like it ties in somewhat with taking a non-hierarchical approach as well. Um, did you find that it it takes time to work out processes for for organizing in that way in comparison to, I suppose, more traditional structured organizations? Yeah, yeah, I, I guess it can. I mean, what, what helps is like pre-COVID after um, every event we'd have, mostly kind of midweek, um, we'd all go for coffee somewhere and discuss what we have planned for the following week or the following month. And are we all happy with X, Y, and Z? And once you keep kind of meetings that regular, then everyone's happy. No one can say they didn't know about something or didn't have input on it or objection to it. Um, and, you know, I think it's been hard now with COVID that we can't actually physically see each other. Mm. And it's trying to keep on top of situations either in Facebook Messenger or Signal or Zoom or whatever. Um, but I think it's important um, that everyone feels that they have input to, to anything that, that we do and that mm. if they have an objection, that it's heard and that it's seen as valid and that it's talked through. Um, and that for me is extremely important um, because I know how it felt to have the kind of, <laughs> the, the, to be the least heard and have my opinion yeah. be the, the least accounted. So I want everyone, whether they've been in the group a week or, or five years or 10 years or whatever, I want every opinion to be equal, you know? Yeah. I think that's um, what keeps everybody um, comfortable and happy within a group because if you know that your feel, feelings on an issue does matter and will be heard, it makes you more inclined to stick around and stay and want to put in more inputs, you know? Mm, definitely. Looking at the campaigns that you've run, I mean, would you say, like, obviously that was very successful in terms of getting fur coats from out-of-shop windows. Do you feel like there's a pressure to get because for you the publicity isn't the key thing it's the actual outcome but I mean did you feel there was a pressure to have more and more high profile things or did you say no we're just going to put that aside we're just going to go for very very focused campaigns um, that are achievable I mean where does the where do you draw the line in your head on these things or where do you as a group where does the group I think like for us it's just kind of about getting the job done and if the media likes it great if the media doesn't like it oh well you know it, it's, it's never kind of a primary goal and 
I found over the years anyway, the media as it is, they only pick up on something um, if it's really controversial. You know, um, you, they're not going to want to be me be talk about the ins and outs of why wearing a fur coat is wrong. Whereas mm. if we did something like to a fur coat, then they'd want to hear about it, you know? So I never felt that the, the media really wanted to hear the genuine passionate reasons why we're doing what we do they mm. wanted us to go do something crazy you know um so yeah. i kind of felt like a little bit um distrustful of media and i kind of learned when i was in my uh, teens as well doing media interviews no matter what i said they always twisted it into something i didn't say or conveyed it in a way that i didn't mean um, and then that made me kind of more reluctant to engage unless I just kind of write the whole press release myself and put mm. it out there. I kind of felt that they were never fair or honest with what they put out anyway. Um, so for us, you know, it's always been just kind of getting the, the job done and the results. Um, and if it got a bit of media attention, great. If it didn't, well, job done anyway, you know? Yeah. Has that then shaped your attitude towards, say, institutions above and beyond the media? like the political institutions, looking for political support, looking for support from other groups. I mean, how would that then, how would you engage with that? And, and how are your perceptions shaped by what you're describing there? Well, I, I kind of kind of put them almost sort of in the, the same category. Uh, I mean, like with, with more left-wing socialist groups, and um, they're always happy to engage. They're always honest and forthcoming with information. Um, if they agree with me on something and want to run with it, they will. If they don't, they'll explain why. Um, whereas, you know, any kind of dealings I've had um, with more of the, the centre-right groups like Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, uh, and even the Green Party, they're not, they're not upfront. They're not honest. They're not uh, engaging. Um, they don't take the issue seriously. They, they fob me off, you know. Um, and that kind of automatically creates a reluctance um, to, to deal with them. And you know, at this stage, if we were approached by any of these groups to want to work, um, you know, it, jointly on legislation or something, we wouldn't want to, you know, mm. um, it, it's it's kind of funny enough. Um, I was approached by a very um, right wing uh, political anti-choice uh, newish party um, about uh, wanting to uh, join up for a bill. And uh, I just said, no, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and it's not that I wouldn't agree with the bill. I yeah. just won't work with that kind of, mm. you know, grouping. Um, mm. Whereas when uh, the Socialist Party Solidarity um, approached us about the fur farming bill, they, they met with us. We, we discussed it in depth and we were all happy with where it was going. And, you know, at the beginning, um, with the fur farming bill, which we were delighted it was successful in, mm. in the end. Um, but at the beginning, one of our kind of collective concerns was a lot of um, people would assume that, OK, if fur farming is banned, encourage the farmers to, to farm sheep or pigs or cows or chickens mm. instead. And we were very concerned at the beginning that we didn't want the narrative of this to just be switched to other animals. So mm. we discussed this um, with Solidarity at the time. And they were more than happy to leave that completely out. And um, what they were suggesting was in media to switch to strawberry farming because in the UK, some of the fur farmers actually were able to rework their fur sheds to be the perfect environment for growing strawberries. So that was the argument. And, you know, Solidarity kept, kept their word. 
not only did they keep the word, they agreed with us. And it was just wonderful and refreshing to hear a politician um, asking for something to be banned on radio and suggesting to stick to, to fruit farming. It was yeah. just like, it was, it was fantastic. And that built such a huge level of trust and communication and stuff. Absolutely fantastic. And then yeah. similar has, has happened with them, um, with Rise, with, with Paul Murphy and the hair coursing bill. Hmm. That's kind of like our number one focus at the moment. And, you know, he, he brought us in and he discussed everything. And, you know, we went through everything in great detail to make sure that we were all really happy um, with what we wanted to do with this bill, where it was going to go. And, you know, the, these are the only politicians that I would work with. And, mm. you know, the same with them, Joan Collins and stuff. She's great as well. But, you know, there has to be engagement. Whereas if, if I don't know, if, uh, if you know, Michal Martin came, rang me and said, hey, Laura, do you want to work on a bill about whatever? I was like, no, <laughs> absolutely not. And even if I wanted the bill, I'd be, okay, right, maybe it's a good idea for a bill. I'll, I'll give Paul Murphy or McBarry a shout instead. You know, it's, yeah. it's that kind of thing, you know? So in a sense, you see, because there's a huge pragmatism in what you're doing there. But at the same time, you're keeping a core belief and keeping your, you know, um, I guess, principles. You know, you're saying, like, this is us and we can do this. So in a sense, you're happy to push the vehicle along, but you don't necessarily want to be in the vehicle at certain points. You can let others kind of, you know, if there was a broader kind of, yeah, yeah, on yeah. fur farms, you know, again, depending on how things go and all these issues. Well, cur sorry, cursing is a better issue as well. I mean, where do you feel things stand on on, on cursing at the moment? Unfortunately, with COVID, it's kind of yeah. ruined a lot of our campaigning um, yeah. plans and strategies. Like with the fur bill, it was great because we could travel all around the country. We went to every county at least twice and different towns. And what we did was we hosted um, information stalls. We did leaflet drops. We yeah. stuck up posters everywhere. And, you know, everywhere we went, then in the coming days, we'd get like lots of emails and stuff from people saying, oh, I saw your poster or I took a leaflet and how can I help and stuff. And there was that kind of immediate feedback and yeah. politicians were, were contacting us um, saying that they're receiving hundreds of emails a day. And, you know, it was just like, it was incredible. So w once we got the opportunity um, with Rise to do the hair coursing bill, we were like, great, you know, we're going to do the exact same thing. Right. And then COVID happened and we've all been stuck at home. So what, what we've been trying to do is, um, well, in between lockdowns, go out and do a bit of leafleting and things like that. But um, predominantly, we've been trying to just do Facebook ads, social media ads, um, mm. email action alerts and stuff. And I don't get the immediate feedback with that as to are people emailing the politicians? Mm. Are they calling them? Um, you know, it's just not the same level. So, you know, we're a lot more apprehensive now about it than we were when we started it. Um, but we're still hopeful. We think... I don't know why anyone would think hair coursing is okay. Um, yeah. So <laughs> we're hoping, we're hoping. Uh, it's funny because we were going to ask you like what your sense and you, you're really outlining kind of in quite troubling terms in a sense, like how the pandemic has impacted on political activity inside the state. And we can talk about that more later. But do you think this is a case of, this is a, a hiatus in a sense, like, okay, assuming things, I'm even hesitant to say this, but say things return to some sort of more normal situation sometime late this year. Do you think it's a case of, I mean, nothing's lost. At least all the groundwork will have been done and then you're in a position where you can move on and you you'd feel happy that next year may be the year that you can bring this to a better conclusion in a sense. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think that um, things are on a bit of a hiatus and, you know, Part of the concern would be if the bill is brought to second stage soonish, I'd be worried um, about whether it would have chances or not. Whereas if we had kind of the, the groundwork done physically out there and talking to people and engaging people a bit more, uh, I'd be more confident. Like with the fur bill, I've, I always felt really confident about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was even before uh, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael decided that they not only agreed, but it was actually their idea all along. Um, but with with hair coursing, I kind of at the start just felt right. We got this. This is going to be easy peasy. But you know, I still I still uh, kind of regain hope. Um, and I know that they are consistently talking about it within the the government and the Department of Agriculture, and they're going to do this big study on hairs now to see how they're affected. And that wasn't a thing before. So I know it's on the agenda, yeah. but. I don't know. I mean, the Green Party have said that if Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael don't um, support it, that they're going to vote against it. And it's the Green Party. Okay. So, yeah. uh, and mm. one of their big policies would be to uh, abolish blood sports and not just hair coursing, fox hunting, shooting, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So for them to be telling me at this point that depending on what the other two say, they're happy to vote against it, mm. that's, you know, it fills me with horror. But um, I still think that there's a chance. I'd be more confident if we were in uh, quote-unquote normal times. Um, But I I do still think that in 2021... who thinks hair coursing is okay i don't i don't get it and um what the the opposing side is trying to paint a picture as um dublin people uh, you know attacking rural ireland again mm. well you know half of my family are from tipperary mm. you know and i can t- tell you right now that rural ireland also says no to hair coursing yeah. okay <laughs> so positive yeah i mean yeah. i i'm i'm always hopeful but if it doesn't go this time then I'm going to get right back to it. We're going to do it again. So yeah. one way or another, it's, it's on the way out. NARA has, um, supports the ALF, but obviously, you know, it has a, a, a very nuanced view on this. So do you want to describe, do you, would you like to describe that maybe? Yeah, um, the, the Animal Liberation Front is basically an autonomous collective um, uh, of people who would engage in underground um, activity that would be maybe in contradiction or opposition to current uh, restrictions of law. So, um, but that would be, you know, um, it could be sabotaging uh, like an industry in some way, whether that's going into a fur farm and uh, releasing animals, whether it's going into a factory farm, releasing animals, whether that's breaking equipment, whatever. So it would be that kind of direct action. Mm. Um, NARA, we operate uh, within the law and, you know, with, with the Animal Liberation Front, no one goes around and says they're the ALF or whatever. So yeah. we don't even know who they are, but do we support actions? Absolutely. Yeah. And we always have, and we've always been very open about that. Uh, because, you know, if, if an animal is in a situation where they're suffering in any way, um, whether that's physically or mentally or whatever, if someone walks in and takes them out of that situation, I'm, I'm, I'm not, not only am I going to agree, I'm going to celebrate, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's, that's just always how we've been. And I know that it can be a sort of a touchy subject. Um, and the media always like paints a very drastic picture mm. of these underground uh, initiatives and things. 
But at the end of the day, uh, the, the Animal Liberation Front have never harmed anyone or anything. This is about mm. saving lives mm. and defeating another cog in the wheel of capitalism. So yeah. I, I see that like an, animal rights activity uh, that does go underground, I don't just see it as a win uh, for animal rights. I see it as a win against capitalism. Yeah. Because if, 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 if you're allowing these machines like factory farming to continue um, or animal testing um, mm. or even hunting, you know, where they, they, they keep pheasants locked up and release them to shoot, that, that's, that's supporting another cog in the machine. Um, and I think that it's very important that people not only stand up and oppose these, these industries, but when you hear of an action that's actually saving uh, a life or saving uh, a sentient being from uh, tor torture and distress and suffering, that mm. should also be celebrated as well and not seen as, oh, well, they trespassed or they broke the law or, you know, that's, that animal was that person's property. No animals are property. They're alive. They yeah. feel, they suffer, they think, they reason. Uh, they're, not, they're not an item in a supermarket. Yeah. Do you find the left in all its broadness tends to be like, what do you find the attitude on the left is or on parts of the left are towards animal rights? We're talking about a very strong concept of rights. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, I think I think that like the left are definitely open to it. But I, I think that there's still a long way to go. Um, for example, I'd, I'd view a lot of the sort of the left policies on these things in terms of animal welfareism rather than animal rights. Oh, yeah. So for, for anyone who's, who doesn't know the difference, welfare would basically mean if, if you're, say, think of a chicken farm, for example, mm. welfare would mean giving them a bigger cage and maybe access uh, to sunlight once a day for 10 minutes. That would be welfare, right? Animal rights is... No, let's let's tear that place down and take those chickens out of there and stop all this. You know, so it, animal rights would be abolition to these things. Mm. Uh, animal welfare would be reforming them in a way that might be more acceptable to society, mm. but it's it's really not acceptable at all. Mm. So that that would be the difference. So I find that like a lot of the left wing activists and groups and parties and all that are one hundred percent opposed to um, fur farming or wearing fur. Uh, our circuses, even zoos, uh, hunting, all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to uh, animal agriculture and veganism, they're not really that interested in discussing the issue or, or considering the issue. And I think that a lot of the uh, excuses that I would hear about it would be, oh, well, until capitalism is defeated, what's the point of me going vegan? Um, and it's not up to the individual to to crush the industry. It's up to the collective and whatever. Yeah. And, you know, be that as it may, you know, um, drops in the ocean add up. And for that, those animals lives, you going vegan does make a difference yeah. because if the demand isn't there, then it's, it's not going to it's not going to keep happening. And I think we're in a, an age of society where being vegan in Ireland is so easy and so affordable. Mm. Like when I went vegan back back in the 1800s, uh, the, the 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 highlight was like Linda McCartney sausages, um, yeah. and you know there was even um, for any uh, old school veggies vegetarian or vegans listening, you might remember sauce mix, and you had to make and form Very your own well. sausages and stuff like that. 
And that was like the the highlight. Whereas now, like there's so many vegan restaurants even in town. Your local supermarkets have their own really affordable but really healthy and delicious um, alternatives and um, mm. even pre-prepared meals and stuff. Mm. Like I feel spoiled for choice that I can go into town and have a, a soya hazelnut latte and a donut and a this and that. You know, yeah. like back when I was 13, it was like, hmm, when shall I soak my mung beans? You know, like yeah. it's, it's just completely different. And like if, if me and my family could do it back then and there are others that have, were doing it way, way longer than me. And if we could all do it right th- then when all these products did not exist, mm. um, then right now it's going to be easy. And like what we always say to people as well, don't be shy, ask us. I'm happy to bring someone supermarket shopping. Well, after COVID, um, yeah. and you know, <laughs> you, you give, give them advice on where to shop and what to That's get. And you know, it's just a, uh, it's remarkably easy now. And I think that yeah. just to bring it back to the, the, the left, you know, if you can make these changes, these changes have such a huge effect mm. on sentient life. Why won't you make them? Um, yeah. And that's, that's kind of the point I'm, I'm trying to push. If you can make that individual dis- difference, okay, it might not collapse the capitalism, mm. but it makes a difference to living creatures that are suffering today. So why not do it? And I think if anyone could do it, and be capable of bringing these policy changes to a government level, yeah. it would be the left. But they have to be open to listening and they have to be yeah. open to being maybe wrong about their choices on this issue up to this point. And do you find a lot of um, resistance to that, would you say? I'm inferring from what you're saying, you have found a lot of resistance at, say, the institutional level of political parties, uh, many of them as distinct from the people within them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, at the, maybe 10 years ago, when I started like pushing at them about this stuff, like point blank, did not want to know. Um, whereas now, um, you know, there's at least some acknowledgement that we have to shift away from animal agriculture. But what bothers me is that it's done on the basis of climate change and mm. preservation of human interest and human life and human needs, rather mm. than transitioning away um, for the the sake of well these animals are actually alive and we shouldn't be killing them so that that that's what does bother me um like a lot of the the left activists i would know or or parties or groupings or you know even diy grassroots groups they'd all be like pushing for okay we need a just transition from farmers to go away from animal agriculture because climate change happening and we need to make sure that you know the planet's here for our children and I agree with that. Like, that's totally, I totally get that, totally agree with that. But there's just this huge, obvious absence of, hey, maybe this pig didn't want to die. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that level, yeah. 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 But I'm hoping it'll get better. Right. Do you think when you make the distinction, say, between animal rights and animal welfare, like you did earlier, um, that even if you move certain people by, you know, degree, more, more welfare, say, that you're coming from, I mean, do you think there's basically a theoretical difference there in terms of your understanding, ethical understanding of rights between these organizations that maybe maybe there's overlap in how you can work together? But I mean, how do you feel about that sort of that yeah, core I, kind of uh, ethical position? I, mean, I, I get I get that. And this is like some other groups would kind of choose the approach of like, let's work on the welfare issues and then maybe we can push it further and further and further. Mm. But for me, it, it's very much an all or nothing. And, you know, mm. I have the same same views when it comes to uh, anti-racism campaigning, anti-fascism. You know, for me, it, 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 you're either one or the other. There can't be mm. a sort of a middle ground, um, you know, because 
if you if you're pushing for these things um that would say maybe as i said make the cage bigger then that also what that does is creates a belief among society that oh the chickens are happy now they got three extra inches and oh we can totally feel yeah. better about it now yeah. and it creates this kind of false narrative and illusion that it's okay mm. and it kind of sidesteps the, the fundamental issue that hey maybe the chicken doesn't want to be in a cage at all maybe it doesn't want to be killed at all and mm. um, so i can see why tactically some groups would do the kind of step-by-step approach um, mm. and maybe you know some people are more receptive that way um but for me it, it's it, it's all or nothing and mm. you know for me if i was to campaign in that step-by-step approach i feel i would be doing the cause a disservice rather than a service, you know, Um, and that's just, that's just, that's just our approach though. And I think what I often do in these situations is put myself in the position of, of the the campaign. So if I, if I was a a mink in a fur farm, would I want people to give me a little pond so I could bathe in, or would I want people to destroy the fur farm? You know, like (laughs) you know what you'd pick. And I try and always operate on that kind of level personally. Do you, do you find yourself or, or even narrow organization then is sometimes kind of at odds with, with environmentalist, other environmentalist groups or with, I don't know, I'm thinking of things like maybe the organic movement or with those sorts of areas. Do you, do you think you're fundamentally are coming from quite a different perspective then? Or is that a fair characterization? Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, um, I think it can be fair to say that, like, you know, we don't have a lot of fans amongst other organizations (laughs) and things. Um, And that could be even in regards to, like, we took a a very public stance on marriage equality. We took a very public stance uh, on repeal and, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter and all that. And that, like, has got us uh, a, a lot of negative attention, even from within sort of animal vegan circles and stuff. But if that's if that's how it's going to be that's that's how it's going to be you know it, it doesn't dissuade us or put us off doing what we do and you know i think from some of the kind of more environmental um groups you know that i i totally agree with a lot of what they do and i care about the planet and climate mm-hmm. change and you know i go to all the marches and stuff like that too yeah. um but they still don't want to listen about going vegan you know mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like they're, they're not they're not there yet and they think that it's coming from in a, a, in a wanting to attack farmers or guilt trip farmers about things mm-hmm. and they're just you know at the moment not hugely open um to seeing that that just really isn't the case you know um and uh, on our website we have a list of kind of goals and wishes yeah. sort of a wish list of what we want and Part of that would be um, allocating funds of retraining programs for farmers to do some something else. And, you know, I, I often think that um, if, if people sell themselves a little bit short, I mean, I've had debates with farmers before uh, who have said to me, well, I've done this all my life. Like, what else would I do? And I'm like, you're capable of doing anything that you want to do. Like, everyone's capable of doing anything just because you were born into a farm and currently have it doesn't mean that's the only thing you're going to be good at in life. So I think uh, work has to be done in kind of building up uh, self-esteem, even within the farming community and giving them options into other things. You know, mm-hmm. uh, if, if, if you were if you were brought up in, on a farm and, you, you know, your parents are saying that this is 100 percent OK and ethical, whatever, of course, you're going to think that and you're going to believe yeah. that and you're going to continue doing that. And that's not necessarily your fault, but you have to be given opportunities for something else. And 
you know, it, I'm pushing for a completely vegan utopia and, you know, a transition away from animal agriculture. Mm. But do I think farmers should be funded and supported into doing something else? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I don't want to see anyone out of a job or struggling. I just want everyone to do everything the best way that they can. And like, you know, I think I'm always open to being uh, corrected and critiqued or, you know, whatever. And I think that we should all be that open. You know, I'm, I'm not perfect. Um, and I, I, I love the fact that my, my social circle and activist circle um, were constantly like correcting each other on things. And I think that's great because it makes me a better person, makes me a better activist. And I think that the wider population should also be a little bit more open to maybe being critiqued, not in a mean way, but kind of like, hey, all right, maybe this isn't such a great idea. Why don't you do this instead or say this instead or whatever? And mm -hmm. I think that's how to, to further um, a more compassionate society. If we're, if we're all open to improving, how could that be a bad thing? You talk, I think one of your aims is um, really kind of um, bringing this into the educational system as well. Um, have you been pushing that side of it at all or have you and, and, and any success in that sense? Because that sounds like a really useful way to go as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think doing school talks is fantastic, you know, mm. and I think that like in, in the educational system, I mean, maybe like obviously you don't want to be showing uh, five year old earthlings or whatever, which is very graphic yeah. uh, animal rights film. But to keep it kind of age uh, appropriate and, you know, let kids growing up know that there is alternatives, there is options. Um, I think that's definitely the way to go. Now, at the moment with COVID, we haven't done any school talks this year, um, yeah. unfortunately. But I'm hoping when things start to, to get back to, to normal or the new normal uh, that we can resume doing school talks. And it's yeah. great. Like, I, I, I love it, especially if there's like, really kind of sassy argumentative kids to be able to be like okay let's let's talk about this let's 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 figure this out let's bring it to its logical conclusion mm -hmm. um and i've had kids email nara after talks to thank thank me for coming and mm -hmm. thank me for the information i've had parents contact me and say hey you know they came home with this leaflet it's about veganism can you can you give me some nutrition and mm -hmm. advice on, on where, where we can go with this and i love that i think that's that's fantastic and I think that, um, you know, especially with the, with social media, which wasn't really around, around back in my day, um, <laughs> I think that like it's, it's already making kids more aware of what veganism is, what animal rights is. Um, you'd be surprised um, what, what kids and teenagers would know when they're asking us on the streets if they're taking leaflets or whatever on things, mm -hmm. but they already know about things. And that just wasn't the case when I started uh, being a campaigner and an activist. So um, definitely, I think a huge way of transitioning uh, to a more vegan animal rights friendly country is mm. bringing it into school so people can make informed choices, yeah. you know, and I think if you're informed about, you know, the right thing, then you're going to naturally want to be inclined that way, you know, to do the right thing. Do, do you find schools themselves are willing to accommodate this generally or or do you get pushback there? Um, at the beginning, when I started um, contacting schools about doing talks, at the beginning, when I started, nobody was interested. Nobody wanted to know, you know. Mm. Um, but I find that, like, the more we go, um, the more open that these, these teachers and schools are. And, like, yeah. 
sometimes like, you know, I, I can be brought into to, to schools where, you know, I would never in a million years thought they'd be interested in hearing about animal rights mm-hmm. and things. And, you know, and then end up having really good discussions and, you know, then they, they want me back for next year and things like that. So, like, I think it's, it's definitely getting better. It could be a lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I love it if we were doing like loads every year. Um, but I definitely see like from where things were 10 years ago to now, there's much more openness. Um, whereas before, when I'd be approaching schools, they'd be like, this is too controversial. We can't talk about animal rights in school. What are you mad? What would the parents say? Um, whereas now, like they're like, oh, we're covering animal rights in our, our CSB work or whatever. Like, can you come in and talk about it a bit more? It's like, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, you know. So yeah, it's it's getting better. It's not it's not changing as quickly as I'd like it to, but it's 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 getting there. In a way, like what you're saying, it sounds. I think it's used the term positive beforehand, but it's like it sounds much more optimistic, even than I felt coming to this conversation with you today. Like it sounds like there's an awful lot more scope there for very radical change. Um, yeah. And. You know, in a shorter time, I maybe they might be expecting in certain ways. Yeah, I think there's been like a, a dramatic shift, and I mean, I think everyone now is seeing the the ads for soy milk and things on the TV, mm. and I just couldn't have even imagined that, like even 10, 15 years ago, seeing that, yeah. you know, um, and uh, billboards and stuff around the country, like it's just it's it's unimaginable, unimaginable, and it's it's increasing every single year and like mm. obviously like i I'd, I'd love it if it was all like 100% yesterday yeah. but because i could see how i started being like the only vegan in the village kind of thing to now yeah. uh, it's just it's just it's just amazing and i think what's changed is awareness you know and i i, I kind of it gives me hope that if people are made aware of things and if they're correctly informed about a situation then they're going to make the right decision, yeah. you know? Um, whereas like before, um, you know, when I started, I was kind of like, no one even knows how to pronounce vegan. Everyone's calling me a vegan or a vegan or whatever. And it, like, no one even knows. And like, oh my God. Whereas now, you know, you could go anywhere uh, around Ireland and that you know, they're, you, they don't have their own separate vegan menu. The, the chef will know kind of what to put together for you. And yeah, you know, even little things like that make a huge difference. And um, it makes veganism much more accessible to everyone. Mm. Um, you know, I remember like when people started contacting years, oh, so years ago, um, asking for vegan guides or recipes and things, they used to be kind of saying like, oh, um, it's hard to deal with the backlash from family and friends. And, mm. they're, you know, I feel picked on and singled out and stuff like that. I don't hear that anymore, you know, yeah. and that's, that's fantastic. There can't be a restaurant in Ireland which doesn't have some, at least even a tilt, even a cosmetic yeah. effort to have to accommodate somebody who yeah. wants to have vegetarian or vegan food. Absolutely. That's a massive change in a very short space of time, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of feel that over the next, like, I mean, I know hair coursing is going to be like our, our number one focus mm. at the moment. And then mm. our goal is then if, if we can get hair coursing banned, that's a, a foot in the door to ban fox hunting. So that's mm. kind of going to be the, the next step. But I'd love to have like a, a really focused campaign on um, getting away from animal agriculture and also animal testing that goes on here. If people don't know. Um, so yeah. like there's always so many projects and so many things to do. But again, I think that if enough efforts put in there to make people aware we're going to see a lot of changes. And I think that um, Ireland over the last few years between marriage equality and repeal, 
you know, we're making a lot of positive uh, changes. And this is based not on the government, but it's based on the people who are getting active in their communities and are fighting for, for change and campaigning for change and taking times out of their day to try and make the country better, not just for them, but for everyone. So for, for this to be happening, um, all of a sudden, I think that things are going to get a lot better. And I'm very optimistic of seeing more positive changes, not just for humans in Ireland, but for animals as well. So we just got to keep everyone going. COVID's put us all on pause a little bit, but <laughs> you know, we, we have to get back out there because we're, I, I feel the country's on a roll and I feel yeah. if we keep going, we're going to see some great things. And Amazing, yeah. you know, hopefully that will also include a left government. A key thing with NARA seems to be the fact that it doesn't just see itself as a single-stranded sort of organisation because it sees itself as anti-fascist, anti-capitalist. And do you want to talk about how that side of the activism also um, inflects your thinking? And, you know, I mean, more recently you've become involved in union activism at the hard end of union activism where you're actually getting out there and campaigning directly. So, I mean, you know, it doesn't seem like you're going to have very many quiet days you know yeah <laughs> yeah I kind of don't know what to do with myself now that I'm <laughs> stuck at home and <laughs> online campaigning just doesn't kind of have that same effect mm. um but yeah I, I think like the the way that like I started campaigning I was very much influenced um by activists in the UK and around mm. Europe whose kind of core base was always anti-fascist and anti-racist and pro-choice and all that so from the beginning it was kind of a given that if you're a vegan animal rights activist well you have to be all these things as well and even at say the beginning when maybe I, I wouldn't have as a teenager known an awful lot about all these different issues um there's always activists there ready to explain or host workshops and things like that and you know then i was kind of at the beginning at the belief well oh, we don't have these issues in ireland this just must be a uk thing or a european thing like i don't see any fascists in ireland and then i come and then i look into it and i'm like oh my god actually like i need to join the local anti-fascist group and do something because we do um so for me it's a constant learning curve um and anything that like we do we want to make sure that we're not um you know jeopardizing our ethics in any way so you know it, with NARA we have a structure that if anyone joins the group um who is any of these things fascist racist what homophobic whatever mm. um they're they're confronted about it and if they're they're not willing to to change their ways then then they get kicked out and you know like thankfully we've only had to kick out a few people over the years but it's been a thing, you know, and mm. we don't we don't hide that fact. If, you, if you're going to be uh, an animal rights activist, you cannot be a fascist. And if yeah. you are, then off you go, you know. Um, yeah. So like all these different campaigns um, and social justice issues, I think they have to tie in with each other. Mm. Um, and we support like absolutely everything we possibly can. Um, when we're not doing animal rights activism, we're supporting something else. Um, and people know us as like, oh, the vegans are here today, you know? <laughs> and then that in turn kind of gets them asking questions about, oh, so like you you do animal rights stuff, like, well, well what's that about? And mm. I, I, I kind of love the way that, you know, once you get involved in, in left-wing radical social justice campaigning, everyone is, is more or less eager to learn from each other. You know, and we never go to an event saying like, hey, we're going to come to this event, hijack it and say, OK, like who's going to listen to us talk about yeah. animal rights and veganism? We don't approach it that way at all. But we find that people ask 
And then we're always then delighted that when they do, and then we find that sometimes they would support some of our events and things. So it's great. And I think that all left-wing radical um, grassroots groups should work together and support each other. And thankfully in Ireland, I, I see that all the time. Um, and it's, uh, you know, been a huge learning tool uh, for me, you know, mm. and, you know, I, I even remember, like, do you remember when Pegida had their meeting a couple of years ago? I was at mm. the at the rally there, and um, I it, it turned out that like I knew a, a bunch of people there who were vegan and, and things, and then they were like, "Oh, you're here!" And, oh, yeah, and, yeah, I'm vegan. And, you know, it's just it's it's fantastic, and I think that um, with Ireland being a kind of a relatively small country, I think a lot of uh, social justice campaigners do know each other. Um, mm. automatically and even if you don't know each other on a let's go for coffee and hang out kind of a basis you know how to communicate to each other and ask for support yeah. if you need it and I think that's brilliant and I have to say like I learned something new from from a, a group probably every month you know yeah <laughs> and I think that's how it should be and I'm always happy to be you know held accountable and you know t told to do better on things or whatever and I love it it's great mm. you know I wondered with um I mean you mentioned this rare occasions when when people haven't signed up properly to to Nara's uh, remit but I wondered as well as the sort of practical campaigning element do you find then on an internal level when people join us on that there's a lot of I don't know do you have theoretical discussion or do you have a, do you have internal education kind of approach or or how that uh, integration works I found that kind of like at the beginning when I set up Nara like people would join and be very kind of unaware of, you know, animal rights in general, but more so kind of unaware of what was happening in Ireland. And mm. we would have lots of talks and discussions and stuff like that. But at the moment, like with, with social media, with Google and everything, anyone can find out anything really, really quickly. Mm. So, but what we do is we have like, you know, private group chats and things like that, where if one of us finds information that we all should know, we share it. Yeah. And, and discuss like what we're going to do about it or what would that mean for a new campaign and stuff like that. So I think that like it's important if you do have a grassroots organization to always be keeping in touch with each other and updating each other on things, because just because you know something doesn't mean everyone else does. Mm. Um, yeah. And in pre-COVID times, it was a lot easier to have meetings um, and discuss new potential um, campaigns or problems that have come up or you know it, it, it was a lot easier to say right let's have a meeting on this particular thing um, I can't wait till we get to, back to that stage it's a lot easier than typing yeah. a million messages and stuff um, but I, we're, we're getting by and I think it's important that um, anyone especially if they're new if there's something that they're unfamiliar with or have any questions that we're a safe space and a chillax space that you can ask anything and no one's going to think that like, you know, or look at you funny because of it. If you're new, we're going to expect that you don't know everything. Like there's a lot of things that like I might reference that happened 15 years ago. I don't expect anyone to, to remember what happened uh, just because I do, you know? Um, so I'm always happy to give backstory and, and explain. And I, with, with Nara, we try and be as kind of friendly and approachable as possible so that everyone, whether they've turned up for their first protest or not, feels really comfortable and that's even on a level of if you don't want to hand out leaflets that's cool if you don't want to hold a poster that's cool if you just want to stand and watch us for a bit that's cool whatever you're comfortable with if someone has any questions that you can't answer like if you're approached by a member of the public send them over to me that's fine you know and you know especially like um 
for new people attending, we'd always ask them, look, we're going, we're all going for coffee. And uh, like, it's kind of an informal meeting we have. Why don't you come along? You don't have to say whatever, but why don't you just come along for 10 minutes and whatever. And like everyone always does. Mm. And then everyone, then anyone new automatically relaxes because they know they're being included and they're being seen and heard and stuff. And I think that just creates a really nice positive dynamic uh, that we strive to always keep it in the group. It's really interesting hearing you say that because this, this, it's clearly very non-hierarchical. But also the other thing that struck me when you're just saying there about leafleting and stuff, clearly, I've, obviously you use the internet and you use um, uh, social media and so on and so forth. But also you're not you're not afraid to use posters and leaflets, and you seem to see like in other words, like it's a full spectrum kind of use of everything. And and this is a left archive. I mean, that's normally what theoretically we're all about. We're about myself and Angus, but it's like it's fascinating to hear people at the you know you know, literally at the cusp of the wave of activism, still using those and you still see a value in that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think like street outreach is hugely beneficial because you get the the one on one conversations um, and it's, it's easy for someone if they see a picture about something to scroll past it on Facebook. Yeah. Whereas if you're on the street, it kind of holds people's attention a little bit more. And if you have a megaphone and you're talking about it, people stop and listen. If they see you're handing out leaflets, they'll come over and take one. And, you know, I find that uh, uh, you know, people can be quite shy about taking a leaflet. And more often than not, we'll have to be kind of trying to engage and be like, would you like one? There's lots of information. It's free, <laughs> you know. And, uh, like, I just think it's a, it's a good kind of segue into communication. Um, whereas on social media, Someone might see our post on our Facebook page, but they're not going to then start messaging us and saying like, hey, I have a question. Would you mind having a chat with me? Um, Whereas on the street, if someone's going by, even on lunch break or something, they'll tend to stop for even a few seconds to be like, oh, okay, what's this about? Uh, What can I do to help? I'm in a rush. Just tell me quickly, you know, and I think that just like increases the, the level of engagement and awareness. And what we found with the Fur Farm campaign, and when we did go around the country, that everyone loved to stop and talk to us about things. And even I could be in a, a shop asking them to put up a poster or take some leaflets. Mm. And I'd be there 20 minutes talking about it. And right. then by the end of it, they'll they'll be promising they'll email their TVs or they'll tell their granny or whatever. And right. I love that. Absolutely yeah. love that. Whereas you don't kind of get that feedback on Facebook. And yeah. I would argue that people are less inclined to take action on Facebook. That's interesting. You know, That's because really if you have that face to face, you're more inclined to be, go home and say, right, well, some, some animal rights activists were saying that this is happening and this is important and that I yeah. could really make a difference if I emailed my TD, I think I'll do it. Whereas if I post on social media and say, hey, email this TD because it's really important, you know, a, a, a core group of people will be like, yeah, on it, mm. copy, paste, done. Mm. Whereas people scrolling might say, oh, yeah, I agree, but yeah, it'll, someone else will do it. That's fine. You know, yeah. so I mean, maybe it's because I'm old school, but I, I like lo- nothing more than being out, having a good old fashioned protest, leaflets, posters, megaphone, having the chats. Yeah. Do you think maybe you get a bit of a shallower engagement online or you might get more eyeballs on it, but those people are less sort of engaged with it? Or... Yeah, I I'd agree. Yeah, they, they'll see it and it, it helps in terms of the awareness level, but whether it results in action I don't know, because 
at this stage of the fur campaign, I was getting um, political parties emailing me saying, please make the email stop. We're going to vote in agreement <laughs> with this. Just please make it stop. And I haven't gotten that at all yet. So yeah. for me, that's like a clear difference, you know? Yeah. We've been saying like how some parts of the left would see animal rights as being other or different. Do you have any suggestions as to what people can read either online or authors who have made you you know have shaped your view of the world you know even sites or whatever just as recommendations for people to maybe go looking to to learn more yeah well believe it or not i i've never really been one for reading the philosophy of animal yeah. rights myself um yeah. but if anyone wanted then yeah we could provide them like a, you know a, a list of reading material and stuff like that and um, but i would say that like some of the the sites to be checking out um apart apart from our own websites and stuff which gives kind of a, a brief and you know very kind of simple explanation of all these issues um would be the likes of animal justice project uh, animal equality uh, animal aid these are all current campaigns internationally um that have great information videos reading material um, on what's happening around the world and that would include what's happening in Ireland um, and they'd be great updated resources um, so yeah I definitely check out apart from ourselves uh, those few uh, for updated knowledge some of the books that are out there um, would be a little bit dated they'd be kind yeah. of written in the 80s 90s and the facts and statistics in them would not be really a reflection of what's happening today um another uh, good good uh, things people could watch would be like documentaries like conspiracy um it would be like the animal people that's a new one that came out that kind of goes follows an anti-vivisection campaign in the u.s and um, that's a real eye-opener um not just in terms of animal rights activism, but how uh, the government and police um, can inhibit that activity when people are doing something out of the goodness of their heart to help animals, how the government can come crashing down to save big industry and stuff. So it's in kind of an anti-corruption video as well. And um, so mm -hmm. I'd recommend that one. Um, but basically, like what I always say to people if they're looking to, to become vegan is contact your local group. Uh, whether that's us, whether that's a, a Facebook group, reach out to other people who, who've been doing this for years and then that makes it so much easier to, to understand, you know? And we're very approachable. If anyone ever had any questions uh, about anything, always feel free to ask us, email us, even if you want to send us a message on Facebook. And we'll happy, happily go through the, the ethics and points and philosophies of things. And, you know, sometimes vegans contact us saying like they're vegan, but they don't know how to debate it with their families. Yeah. You don't have to debate it. You know, you, you know what's right. You don't have to be the expert in every single issue. Like a, a lot of people would be afraid to discuss animal testing, vivisection, for example, because they're not a scientist. Hmm. you don't have to be a scientist to know that it's cruel you know so go go with what you believe uh what, what you believe is right and uh, be confident in it and then if you need some backup contact the likes of us that's brilliant advice listen thank you so much I, that's absolutely fantastic that's brilliant thanks thanks, thanks so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure thanks a million dollars